0: Happy Mother's Day to my mama, who's in the house this morning. Hey, mom. And to all the moms. We are in uh, week two of a new series that we've begun, that we're going to be in for a while, walking uh, through uh, the book of 1 Peter together. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing in on the theme of rejoicing. I want to pray for us as we dive in together. God, as we come now to your word, Lord, we need your spirit to help us to hear what you would have to say to us and to move beyond hearing understanding, not just at an intellectual level, but the kind of understanding that changes us, that we would walk and live differently as a result of having encountered you through this word. So God, we need your help. We pray for your spirit to move among us and to do a work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been observed that one of the things that makes Christianity unique among world religions is that it is a singing faith. Professor Rob Smith says that singing is one of the chief things followers of Jesus are renowned for both down through the ages and now all around the world. This isn't true of every religion. In in Islam, there is debate as to whether singing is even permissible. Many Muslims believe that the Quran prohibits music altogether. Strictly speaking, says one expert, the, the words Islamic religious music present a contradiction in terms. In, in, in other faiths, singing might be incorporated into the religious practices and rituals, but it's it's not central. It's not at the heart of the religion. But for Christians, singing is essential. It's it's central. We we sing when we gather. We sing at Christian weddings. We sing at Christian funerals. We sing in the car on the way to school. We have entire subgenres and radio stations and award shows devoted to Christian music. Christians are a singing people. One pastor remarks, the fact that Christianity is a singing religion bears witness not only to the way we're wired as human beings, but to the kind of God we have, namely a God who is one day, according to Zephaniah 3.17, going to sing over us. We believe in a singing God, and so we are a singing people. As Peter begins his letter to these believers in Asia Minor, he begins with an invitation to sing. Verse 3 begins Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is erupting in eulogy, he's erupting in song. And then, three times in the following six verses, Peter is going to mention. Joy or rejoicing. He is reminding these brothers and sisters in Christ that Christians are people who rejoice, that we sing our way forward in the faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul says to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in everything, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You wanna know what God's will for your life is? Maybe you showed up this morning with that question on your heart. What is God's will for my life? Maybe you're a college student and you wanna know what God wants you to do with the rest of your life. I can remember asking that question. What does God want me to do with the rest of my life? Well, here it is. He wants you to rejoice always. He wants you to pray constantly and he wants you to give thanks in every circumstance. Be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. Pastor H.B. Charles says, Unsafe people do not rejoice in God, pray to God, or give thanks to God. Religious people rejoice sometimes, pray when they feel like it, and give thanks when things are going well. But Christians rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And that's exactly what Peter is inviting these believers into as he begins his letter to them. He summons them to rejoice. In verse 6, he says, Rejoice, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Peter encourages these believers to rejoice despite the fact that their lives are currently filled with trials. He calls them to sing even in the midst of hardship and suffering. For for a short time, he says, you suffer various kinds of trials. We we know from the Gospels that Peter was married because there's a story in the Gospels of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law but here we pick up an added insight into Peter's life almost certainly Peter had to have had kids because his use of the phrase a short time is essentially the equivalent to what dads say when their kids ask over and over on a long car ride are we there yet (laughs) not much longer not much longer That's what Peter is saying here. When he says for a short time, what he actually means is the entire span of their earthly lives. Trials will not fully go away, Peter is saying, until their time on earth is done. Jesus told his disciples in the world, you will have tribulation. The Christian life is not impervious to suffering. If anyone tries to tell you that becoming a Christ follower means that your life will suddenly all fall in place and all your problems will go away and it will all be easy, that person is lying to you or they don't know their Bibles very well. In fact, the believers that Peter is writing to were suffering, at least in part, precisely because they were Christians. Christians. They were being mistreated and persecuted for their faith. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus says. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Christianity does not make your trials disappear. What Christianity does is give you a reason to sing. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, and Zach led us, Through this earlier, he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The Apostle Paul was a man who was whipped for his faith, beaten for his faith, maligned and stoned and imprisoned for his faith. But in light of all of his suffering, he says that his suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. He's saying it doesn't even register on the scale. It's so light in comparison with eternal life that it, it doesn't even register. It pales in comparison to the glory that is coming. And, and here Peter says that trials are but a brief moment, just a short time in light of eternity. That they'll only be here for a little while longer. The nature of the trials that Peter refers to are, are varied. He describes them as various kinds of trials. That the word that he uses for, for various literally means many colored, many-colored, multicolored trials. It could be sickness, it could be heartbreak, it could be rejection, it could be job loss or disappointment, it could be persecution or imprisonment. It's any number of hardships that come into the life of a believer either as a result of living in a fallen world or as a result of following Christ. And in light of all of such things, Peter says, nonetheless, to rejoice, to sing. Even though now for a short time you suffer grief in various trials, rejoice. How do you sing in the face of sadness? Your pastor is someone who has, at times, suffered through seasons of mild depression. There are days when I wake up and I just feel sad. It just feels like a weighted blanket. How are you supposed to sing when the darkness doesn't lift? How are you supposed to rejoice in tribulation? How are you supposed to sing in trial? Notice that this is the context in which Peter invites us to sing. He says, rejoice even though now you suffer. Peter is insinuating here that rejoicing is not a circumstantially dictated thing. It's not predicated on how you feel at the moment. It's it's predicated on what is actually true. Verse 6, he says, rejoice in this. And the this that Peter is referring to is actually back in verses 3 and 4. Rejoice in this, that because of God's great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. To rejoice, Peter is saying, there are some things that we need to be reminded of. There are some realities that we need to lay hold of. First Peter says, you should rejoice in the fact that you have been born again. God has given you new birth. Once you were not spiritually alive. The, the Bible teaches that, that as a result of the fall, as a result of, of Adam's sin, that that sin spread through the creation like a cancer and it's passed on to each one of us that we're all born in iniquity. We're conceived in iniquity. We're born in sin. We're, we're born separated from God. So Ephesians 2 puts it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lost following the course of the world, living as a rebel, consumed with sin and self. And as a result of that, you were under God's judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What God did was he broke into your life. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, it's because God broke into your life and he opened your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And it was like a veil was lifted. And you saw him and that changed everything. It literally made you come alive. And God opened your heart up to believe the gospel and he awakened you to life and he forgave your sins and he filled you with his Holy Spirit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How do you rejoice in the midst of suffering? Peter says, you rejoice in this, that God has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Rejoice in the reality that you've been born again. Rejoice in the reality that the tomb is still empty, that Jesus is alive, that sin and death have been defeated. And because Jesus is alive, hope is alive that what has happened to Jesus will happen to us. Nothing can take your salvation away. You've been born again into a living hope. Peter's going in here a little bit on the pagan gods of this world. They're dead. There's no life in that. Peter says you have a living hope because your God is a risen savior. Even in your darkest days, you can rejoice in that. That's not all. Peter also says that you've been born again into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Commentator Karen Jobes points out that that since wealth and inheritance were, were most often vested in land in the first century. That getting displaced, being sent away from your homeland to another place likely meant the loss of whatever property you stood to inherit. And so it's, it's easy to imagine these believers that Peter is writing to feeling hopeless and discouraged in light of their exile. They lost their inheritance. Others of them were suffering the loss of jobs and relationships and social status. If they converted to Christ out of paganism, the, the, their families may have, may have shunned them. And whatever inheritance they stood to gain through their families was now lost. And so Peter reminds them that through their salvation, they've been brought into God's family. And by being brought into God's family, they have an inheritance in Christ that can't be touched by the uncertainties of this world. That no amount of tribulation or suffering can diminish what awaits them. Their inheritance is secure because their inheritance is with Jesus himself. Listen to me. What is assured to the believer at the end of this life is Jesus and all that comes with him. Pastor John Stark reminds us that by virtue of our union with Jesus, what is true of Jesus is true of me, and what belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Sit in that for a moment. What is true of Jesus is true of me. At his baptism, it tells us that Jesus, as he went into the water that the heavens sort of opened up and the Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus and that a voice from heaven spoke over Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Beloved, what is true of Jesus is true of you. God is well pleased with you. Oh, to truly, really know that deep down in your soul. If you really believe that, it would change everything. If we really believe that, we wouldn't be able to not rejoice. We would have to bust forth in, in worship. Listen to me. If you were in Christ, then at the end of this life, When you go to stand before God the Father, He's not only going to assure you that you are forgiven, He's not just going to acquit you. He's going to greet you with the utterance of His pleasure in you. Friends, God in Christ is pleased with you, He's going to sing over you. That's your inheritance. That is what is being kept in heaven for you. What is true of Jesus is true of me. And what belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. As sheep in God's fold, you are a co-heir with Christ. And everything that is his, he's going to share with you. The Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians, everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, it's like he takes it way on up there, or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Can I suggest that perhaps the reason many of us struggle to rejoice is because we spend too little time considering what is ours in Christ? I mean, can we be honest? We wake up some mornings and we don't feel like singing. Some of you walked in here this morning, you just didn't feel like singing. But if we really knew what is ours in Christ, we'd sing. God's pleasure is yours, Christ's kingdom is yours. In Jesus, you are more loved than you can even imagine. And the kingdom that awaits you is wilder and more wonderful than you can even dream. You can rejoice. And no amount of depression or sickness or suffering can separate you from those things. In fact, what Peter goes on to show is that even the trials, even the trials that you face now are actually employed by God to prepare you for that coming day when those promises become full realities. Notice verse 7. Peter says, Now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses a metaphor here of of a smelter. Gold is purified by fire. When, when When you heat up Gold to, to really high temperatures, what happens is it burns out all of the impurities. And, and what's left, what remains after being heated up, is just the pure thing. It's just pure gold. And in the same way, Peter says, one of the roles that trials play in our lives is, is to purify us and to prepare us for the day when our faith becomes sight, for the day when Jesus is revealed. God is using suffering in our lives to refine us for glory. And so here's what this means. I hope this helps us. It means that there is no such thing for the Christian as pointless suffering. For the Christian, there is no such thing as pointless suffering. I want you to think about that for a moment. Every single struggle you face in this life as a believer in Christ is meaningful. Every frustration, shout out to moms this morning. Every sadness, every loss, every heartbreak, every time you've been mistreated, even the things that seem so utterly meaningless and impossible to make sense of, here's the gospel promise. God is using every one of them to refine you and to prepare you for the day of glory. Second Corinthians 4, 17 tells us that our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Pastor John Piper points out that this verse doesn't say our light momentary affliction will be followed by an eternal weight of glory. That's not what it says. It says the affliction is preparing the glory. In other words, through the trial, the glory is being accomplished. Piper says every millisecond, of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. God is working in your suffering for your glory. In our passage, Peter is saying something very similar. He's saying that your suffering is preparing you for the day of glory. It's it's, it's refining you, that God's that, That trials are God's instruments of purification to ready you for glory. And though we don't rejoice in the pain of trials, we can rejoice through them. Because we know that they're meaningful. We know that God is at work. We know that all things are working together for ultimate good. So we can, as Romans 5 tells us, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Here's what that means. It means that when you get to the end of enduring the trial, it's not going to be empty. You're not going to be disappointed. That at the end of endurance, through suffering, there's a reward. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. As we close, I want us to notice not simply that Peter is telling us that we ought to rejoice. He's not saying, hey, you guys need to rejoice. It's not just something Christians are supposed to do. It's something we have to do to keep our faith in Jesus alive. Rejoicing is actually the fuel that keeps our faith going. Verse 5 says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Let's unpack this. What is guarding you? Verse 5, you're being guarded by God's power. God is doing the guarding. He's the one that keeps you. But how? How is God guarding you? Faith. What is keeping you tapped into God's power, what is keeping you guarded is your attaching yourself to him by faith. You are being guarded by God's power through faith. And so you attach yourself to God by faith and he keeps you. Now here's the question. What fuels that faith in God? How do you keep holding on to God so that he guards you? When trials come, when life gets hard, when circumstances are are impossible, what keeps you rooted in faith? How do you keep your faith in Jesus alive and ticking? Peter says by rejoicing verse 8 though you have not seen him you love him though not seeing him now you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy peter saying you really rejoice Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Rejoicing fuels our faith forward to the end. Why do we gather and sing every Sunday? There are lots of answers that we could give to that question, right? We gather because it's the pattern that we find in the New Testament. We gather and sing because God is worthy of our praise. Amen? Here's an answer for you. We gather and we sing because your faith will fizzle out if you don't. You need regular reminders of who you are in Christ. You need regular reminders and assurance that you have been forgiven and loved by God. You need to remember that there is an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for you. You need to remember that God is at work in your trials, that you are loved. And so we gather and we sing the gospel like our lives depended on it because they do. We got to rejoice the gospel deep down into our souls until we believe it. What will keep you going when you're discouraged, when you're downtrodden, when you're burdened by life is to implant the gospel deep into your heart through rejoicing. It's the only way to keep going. It's counterintuitive, I know. It's a paradox. I don't feel like rejoicing because life's hard. You got to rejoice. You don't do it because you feel like it. You do it because it's true. God is true. His gospel is true. And when you make that decision to rejoice, the Holy Spirit meets you there. And it's mysterious. And it's hard to explain, especially to an unbeliever. But when you make the decision to revel in who God is and to revel in what he's done, to revel in the new birth and revel in your inheritance, when you make the decision to rejoice, the Spirit meets you there. And what happens is it actually makes you want to rejoice how to make the decision to do it. This is the way forward. Let us learn to sing our way forward in faith. Let's pray together.